0: In the early 1990s, the city of Atlanta began a wide-scale demolition project.
1: This is a day that many have dreamed of and others feared would eventually come. The first phase of demolition. Some of
0: the first buildings to be razed were part of a federal housing development called Techwood Homes.
1: Uh, these apartments are very, very old, and you and they have to come in here constantly to keep them up. It's uh a danger to the tenants, some conditions, and...
0: By the time these homes were demolished, they were considered blighted property. It's an official term, it's still used today, to describe uninhabitable or dangerous places. And it wasn't just Techwood. Federal public housing like it, in Atlanta and across the country, had deteriorated. Broken elevators, broken lights, unreliable heat and hot water, trash piling up in garbage chutes, boarded up apartment units, Organized crime. This kind of public housing, some said, it had been a nice idea. It had offered hope.
2: Anyone that is passing a high-rise project and looking in from the outside,
0: it seemed like a beautiful home, a clean home and another place to live in. But it just hadn't worked out. But I live inside and I know the atmosphere that I am living in. So, Nick, I bring up TechWood in part because it wasn't just one of the first to come down. It was the first, as in the very first in the United States, to go up.
3: This was the first ever public housing?
0: So Atlanta has the
2: first public housing in the country, right? So TechWood Homes in 1936, first public housing development that was federally financed, locally administered.
0: This is Akira Rodriguez.
2: I'm an assistant professor of city and regional planning at the University of Pennsylvania's Weitzman School of Design.
0: This is Civics 101. I'm Hannah McCarthy.
2: I'm Nick Capodice.
0: And this is part one of two on federal housing in the U.S. Later on, I'm going to talk about Techwood and Atlanta because the story of what happened within that city's public housing can teach us a lot about people, space and power. But first, we need to understand what we talk about when we talk about federal public housing. That is part one, housing policy. The
3: story of homes, how a people live, is the story of the foundation on which a nation is built. Very quickly, Hannah, can we just define what public housing is?
2: Yes, so public housing to me is housing that is subsidized by the government. And so that is a very broad definition and kind of includes all housing, which is the point. To me, it should be like all housing is actually public housing. Hold on. All housing in the U.S.? This is like a favorite housing policy stat that our largest housing expenditure from the government is the mortgage interest tax deduction. It is not Section 8. It is not, you know, constructed public housing units. Um, that is actually our biggest giveaway. And so all of us receive benefit of varying degrees from the federal government in order to support our housing costs and needs. And it really is the stigma, particularly the racialized and gendered stigma of public housing as we think of it, the tall buildings, the empty lots, that it, it sort of has this negative connotation. But we all live in public housing.
0: So when we say subsidized housing in America, the typical association is with very low income renters who qualify for government subsidized housing units or housing assistance vouchers from the government. But what Akira is saying is that the biggest subsidy is in mortgages for private homes. Anyway, for this episode, when we talk about public housing, we're talking about that last category that Akira described. Constructed public housing units, apartments and homes that the U.S. government financed the construction and provided for the management of.
1: The federal government first got involved in housing in the New Deal. It first got involved uh, with the creation of the first public housing in this country.
0: This is Richard Rothstein, author of The Color of Law.
1: Uh, The first public housing in this country was created by the Public Works Administration, the first New Deal agencies. It... uh, created projects around the country, the first civilian public housing ever created in this country. Okay, the New Deal, this is that period during and after the Great
3: Depression, when Franklin Delano Roosevelt pushed a bunch of legislation through Congress to stop the U.S. essentially from going under. Yeah. And due to various financial and policy disasters, there were hundreds of thousands of people without jobs or homes. So, FDR created a bunch of agencies and programs to help Americans survive and bring the economy back from the brink.
2: The legislation that has been passed or is in the process of
1: enactment can properly be considered as part of a well-rounded,
2: well-rounded plan.
0: And infrastructure-wise, we got the Public Works Administration. It spent billions of dollars to hire companies and administer projects across the country. And it built, among tons of other things, public housing, the very first being Techwood Homes in Atlanta.
3: And the federal government had never been involved in housing like this before. This was the first time.
0: Right. Public housing was a brand new concept in the U.S. And when they came in, cranes blazing, the government made sure to include a crucial policy about the public homes that were being built. Here's Akira again.
2: Public housing starts off as a segregated program. And so um, in the New Deal, which is when public housing begins in Atlanta, um, out of the sort of suite of programs and policies offered by Franklin Roosevelt, it is, you know, we're going to build six public housing developments in Atlanta. Three of them will be for whites. Three of them will be for African-Americans.
3: Wait, the federal government literally said
1: that these homes are going to be segregated? This was public policy, administrative policy. And it began in the New Deal during the Roosevelt administration, during the Great Depression, because there was no federal involvement in housing prior to the New Deal.
3: Okay, this is policy, not law. Congress did not pass a law saying heretofore housing shall be segregated in the United States.
0: Nope. Instead, this was the policy of the Public Works Administration or the PWA like an internal rule. Black neighborhoods and white neighborhoods. Black housing and white housing. But I do want to make it very clear, this was policy that was written down.
3: So this wasn't de facto segregation. This wasn't some sort of off-the-books way that people simply behaved due to bigotry and racism.
0: This was how the PWA operated. It was the federal government actively segregating people, bureaucrats deciding what housing of this kind should look like. It's just that housing of this kind hadn't existed before.
1: So there was no opportunity for the federal government to impose uh, segregation. There were many efforts at the local level and state levels to do it. And with the creation of the first public housing in this country, everywhere it created it, it segregated it, creating separate projects for African Americans, separate projects for whites, frequently uh, segregating neighborhoods that hadn't previously been segregated.
3: As in, the PWA wasn't just building segregated housing units. It was also segregating neighborhoods that had not been segregated before?
0: In some cases, the P.W.A. would look at an integrated neighborhood and just designate it like this is now a black neighborhood or this is now a white neighborhood. And then they would demolish the existing neighborhood and build an either all black or all white public housing development.
3: But Hannah, how did the federal government justify
1: this? In 1934. Uh, the Federal Housing Administration was established
0: all right we're gonna do a quick zoom out here to figure out what happened are you with me let's go part of the New Deal was to establish public housing another part of the New Deal was to help people buy homes a big part of the financial system collapse during the Great Depression is that people were defaulting on their mortgages left and right the government passed the Federal Housing Act and created the Federal Housing Administration. Now the FHA made a couple of things happen. For one thing, it changed the terms of mortgages. You could make smaller payments over a longer period of time.
1: And so they leave, reluctantly it seems, for they both would like to have this place for their very own. Too bad they can't afford it. Ah, but maybe they can. For according to this sign, they can buy this house with monthly payments that are less than they now spend for rent.
0: For another, the FHA would insure mortgages.
3: Basically, even if someone did default, as in not pay their mortgage, the federal government would have the mortgage lenders back, essentially protecting banks and other financial institutions so we didn't end up in another financial mess all
1: over again.
0: That's right. But they'd only insure mortgages in certain neighborhoods.
1: It imposed a uh, program of excluding African-Americans from neighborhoods where it was issuing mortgages or guaranteeing mortgages, rather insuring mortgages, or where it was financing developers to build suburbs.
0: Nick, you asked for a justification for all of this, and there is one. It is on the books and everything. That's coming up right after this break.
3: But before we go, I just want to remind everyone, it's tough to take something like public housing or an amendment or a foundational document and cram it into one digestible episode. We do our best. And it's the job of our very patient executive producer to just take out the stuff that's a bit extraneous. But some people out there might like the extraneous stuff. If you are one of those people who likes ephemera and deep dives, you should definitely subscribe to our newsletter. It's called Extra Credit. It comes out every two weeks. It's fun. It's free. And you can sign up at our website, civics101podcast.org.
0: We're back. This is Civics 101. And this is part one of a two-parter on federal public housing. Part one, policy. How did the United States government approach housing once it finally got itself involved?
3: And before the break, Hannah, you were telling me that the government had a reason. It had a justification for excluding black Americans from the housing assistance it was providing to white Americans. And so I want to know what exactly was that justification?
0: Well, the justification here, the reasoning behind generally not granting black Americans these insured mortgages and new affordable homes was that Black-owned homes were thought to bring down the value of homes around them, and that Black-owned homes, because of that, were not the kind of thing that the federal government was generally going to ensure. This becomes glaringly clear when developers start building the suburbs.
1: The Federal Housing Administration began to finance developers to build subdivisions in suburban areas. This really ramped up after World War II, when millions of returning war veterans were coming home, needing housing. The only way they could do it was by going to the Federal Housing Administration and then the Veterans Administration. And uh, both of those agencies required as a condition of their issuing bank guarantees for the loans that these developers needed to build the subdivisions as a condition that they never sell a home to an African American. And uh, they went so far as to say you couldn't even guarantee the bank loan for a developer who was going to build an all-white project if it was going to be located near where African Americans were living. Federal Housing Administration had a manual that laid this out. This wasn't the action of rogue bureaucrats. It was a policy, a written policy of the federal government.
0: This manual was distributed all over the country. And... How does a home being owned by a Black individual or family bring down its value, according to this manual? Alongside the various factors that would make a neighborhood a bad financial investment, environmental factors like smoke, odors, and fog, this was an indicator.
1: Infiltration by inharmonious racial groups. That language
3: was explicitly in the manual.
0: It was. And let me just give you an example of what this looked like. There is this infamous dividing line in Detroit, Michigan, called Eight Mile Road. To the south of Eight Mile Road was an historically black community. But white families began to settle closer and closer to that area. And suddenly, neither black nor white families could secure FHA insured mortgages.
3: Because the FHA saw the threat of inharmonious racial groups, which was on its no loans list.
0: So a white developer looks at this issue and comes up with a solution. He builds a wall between the white area and the black area.
3: A literal wall.
0: Yes, literally. It is still there. Anyway, the wall goes up in 1941. The FHA reappraised the white homes. And lo and behold, it approved their mortgages.
1: But not the homes of the black families. In the 1930s. Uh, There was a federal agency called the Homeowners Loan Corporation, which created maps of uh, almost every major city in the country. And the maps were designed to guide the federal agencies, like the Federal Housing Administration and the Veterans Administration, to um, where it was safe, low risk to make loans guaranteed loans, I should say. The federal government doesn't make the loans. It guarantees the bank loans or insures them. The areas where it was too risky to insure mortgages or loans to developers uh, were colored red. And one of the criteria that uh, the map developers used to decide which neighborhoods would be colored red was whether there were uh, African-Americans living in it. Now, banks... uh, followed a similar policy that wasn't because of the maps, but the term redlining comes from these maps that um, the Homeowners Loan Corporation uh, originally drew. And uh, redlining refers to the fact that there are neighborhoods where the government, where banks, where insurance companies uh, won't uh, support housing because they are black neighborhoods. Okay, I've certainly heard
3: of redlining, but I don't know if I've realized that there are actual physical maps with red lines drawn around areas, drawn around the homes that this loan corporation says are undesirable. And, of course, undesirable in this case means in
1: a black community. Was all this just totally out in the open? It was well known at the time. This is not a secret policy that the government was following. Uh, Certainly people who were directed to separate uh, housing projects based on their race knew what was happening. Certainly people who bought homes where their deeds said that they couldn't you know, sell or rent to an African-American knew what was happening. So this was a well-known public policy. It was not something in the South. It was a national policy. And it was the uh, cause of much of the segregation that we have today without these policies, we would have a much more integrated society today. But this was, as I say, it was done by the officials of the Federal Housing Administration and Veterans Administration. It wasn't a single person who was dictating this. This was a widespread federal policy across several federal agencies, all the agencies that were involved in housing. All right, Hannah, just pause here for a minute. It's just
3: that all of this, at first blush, sounds
1: massively unconstitutional.
3: Am I wrong about that?
1: Well, it is unconstitutional. Uh, You can take as many blushes as you want. It's unconstitutional. The Supreme Court annihilated the intent of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments to the Constitution. In 1866, following the adoption of the 13th Amendment, which prohibited uh, not only slavery, but the characteristics of slavery, and authorized the uh, federal government to implement that provision in 1866 congress passed the law prohibiting discrimination in housing private or public prohibiting discrimination in housing that law was amended a couple of times and the supreme court eventually uh, evaluated it in 1883 and said it was unconstitutional
3: the court said it was unconstitutional to prohibit discrimination in housing
0: They took a very, very narrow view of the 13th and 14th Amendments, essentially saying these amendments cannot control individuals, and they also only apply to literal enslavement. And eventually, segregation would be deemed unconstitutional in various cases. But there's this really important point that Richard made when it comes to that desegregation. Federal segregation in housing, as in where people live, has a much more lasting effect than segregation in other spheres of life, even after the court acknowledges that it is not constitutional.
1: Once we've created segregation, it's hard to undo. You know, if you, we had segregated restaurants and buses uh, prior to the 1960s. We passed a, a law saying you can't segregate restaurants anymore, the next day anybody can go to any restaurant. We passed a law saying you can't segregate neighborhoods, the next day things wouldn't look much different. Because housing doesn't change overnight. You don't just wake
3: up the next day and move.
0: And the reasons why are bigger than, well, it's hard to integrate. When we segregated housing and who was allowed to have certain kinds of housing, the United States profoundly affected housing access for generations. Richard talks about this place called Levittown. It was this large FHA-insured all-white affordable development built for veterans returning from World War II.
1: Five years ago, this was a vast checkerboard of potato farms on New York's Long Island. Today, a community of 60,000 persons living in 15,000 homes, all built by one firm. This is Levittown, one of the most remarkable housing developments ever conceived. The white returning war veterans, as well as other whites uh, who were living in urban areas and wanting to move to these suburban homes, Bought them for eight, $9,000, $100,000. I'll use current n- dollars from now on, $100,000 in today's money. And they gained wealth over the next couple of generations as those homes appreciated in value. So you can't buy a home in Town today for $100,000. You can't buy a home in any of these suburbs for $100,000. They now cost, depending on the area of the country, at dollars 300000 $400,000. In some places, a million dollars and more. So the white families gained wealth from the appreciation and the value of their homes. They used that wealth to send their children to college. They used it to perhaps take care of medical emergencies or, or temporary unemployment. They used it to subsidize their own retirements, and they used it to bequeath wealth to their children and grandchildren, who now have, who then had down payments for their own homes. African-Americans are prohibited from participating in this wealth-generating program
0: desegregation, in housing specifically, eventually came. The Fair Housing Act of 1968 said, "Okay, Black individuals and families can live in formerly white-only neighborhoods. But that doesn't take care of the generational wealth gap between white families and Black families, which was created, in large part, by racist housing policy.
1: Levittown today is oh about two percent African American. There are some African American families who can afford who can afford to buy five hundred thousand dollar homes, but Levittown is is located in an area. Is probably about 13, 14% percent African American.
3: Because if you essentially prohibit home ownership assistance to Black families, then a huge part of the population can only rent. For decades, they can't buy a home.
0: And owning a home is pretty much the best way to accumulate wealth over generations. You can take out loans and you can use your house as collateral. You can sell a home for way more than you bought it for and give some of that wealth to your family. But that path to wealth was closed to a lot of Americans.
1: What the Fair Housing Act itself cannot fix. So it's possible to redress this. But it requires enormous financial commitment, subsidies, to African-American families to move to places that they were unconstitutionally prohibited from living in.
0: Okay, so Nick, that is the big picture. When we talk about federal housing policy in the United States, when we talk about who got help and what kind and how, We need to understand that the process was steeped in racist segregationist policy. And that policy made home ownership more difficult for Black Americans as it made it easier for white Americans. Many of the affordable homes built for white Americans following the Great Depression still stand today. But of some of the homes specifically built for Black Americans, homes like the rental apartment projects of Atlanta, Georgia, many of them have been deemed a failure and raised to the ground. So now we are going to take a very specific and close look at federal housing in one city, Atlanta, Georgia. That's in part two of federal housing, one city's story. This episode was produced by me, Hannah McCarthy, with help from Nick Capodice. Christina Phillips is our senior producer. Jackie Fulton is our producer. And Rebecca Lavoie is our executive producer. Music in this episode by Anna Moya, Zylo Zyko, Ketza, Arthur Benson, and Rocket Jr. You can listen to part two on federal housing in the United States, as well as the entirety of the rest of our catalog at civics101podcast.org, where you will also find a bunch of other resources. Civics 101 is a production of NHPR, New Hampshire Public Radio.